Good morning. Is everybody okay this morning? Yeah. It's a really, really beautiful arrangement choir. Thank you so much, Nathan. And Woodmont, thank you for, for having me uh, here. I had the privilege of sharing with your Sunday school uh, teachers and leaders several months ago. And so thank you again for the invitation to come back and worship with you. Uh, my wife, Holly, and four kids, um, we, we debated about their presence here this morning. Um, but the other Sunday school teachers that my wife serves with uh, were all gone on fall break this Sunday. So she's battling the four-year-old class all by herself, um, which is a lot because my four-year-old is in the room. Um, we know that's a lot. And my other three were like, um, friends or daddy preaching, friends or daddy preaching. So I'm here alone. Here we are. Um, if you have your Bible, please, would you turn to John chapter 18? That is page 70, 766 in that pew Bible in front of you. John chapter 18, we're going to be today, verses 1 through 11. Um, this, uh, just in the few months ago, I had the opportunity to take my oldest son, who is 15, to the uh, Department of Motor Vehicles in Williamson County for him to take his permit test. The test took 10 minutes because he failed it rapidly. Um, but the wait took four hours, four hours. And within about half an hour, uh, doing nothing more than observing things as they were taking place, I figured out how to run the DMV far better than everyone who was working in the DMV. Um, no one in the room was looking to me for answers for how to improve the DMV, but I had it all figured out. And after about an hour or so, I was ready to take matters into my own hands. So I began to look around the room and assess the, um, uh, the facial features and the other behaviors that were going on in the room. And I saw several other parents of many other teenagers there. And I could tell by the look on their faces that they too were ready to take matters into their own hands. Indeed, People who were there for other reasons, other than teenagers, to fail their permit test, also had that look on their face that they were ready to take matters into their own hands. Has anybody else ever been in a situation where they were ready to take matters into their own hands? Now, could you imagine just for a moment how chaotic things would have truly gotten in the DMV if I or others or all of us together would have stood up in the DMV and said, excuse me, folks, I think we all know just how terrible this is all going. So we've been talking and we're now taking matters into our own hands and we're now in charge of the DMV. It would not have gone over very, very well. well this morning, we're going to look at a passage of scripture in which many people with competing agendas and competing perspectives will attempt to take matters into their own hands. And some of these people will walk away defeated, some will walk away feeling confident, but one person in this story will walk away looking defeated, but will actually be the one who is victorious. So would you stand with me if you're able and look at God's word with me from John 18, one through 11. We'll read together, John 18, one through 11. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. 
So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, who is it that you are seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. When Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, who is it that you are seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I told you I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he had said. I have not lost one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is God's word. You, you, may, be, you may be seated. So our passage begins today with what I like to think of as a huddle break, probably because I've been watching too much football, but that's the analogy that comes to mind here. So inside the huddle, Jesus has called a play, and that play is John 14 and 15 and 16 and 17. But now here in John 18, the huddle is breaking. So if you remember, it's in the huddle that Jesus told his disciples not to be troubled because he was going to prepare a place for them. It was in the huddle that Jesus told them that he was the way and the truth and the life. It was in that huddle that he told his disciples that he was in the Father and the Father was in him. It was in the huddle where Jesus promised the Holy Spirit who would be their strength and their power and he would illuminate the scriptures for them. It was in the huddle where Jesus admonished them to be branches that were grafted into him, the true vine. It was in the huddle where Jesus reminded them that they had not chosen him, but that he had chosen them and had appointed them to produce lasting fruit. It was in the huddle that Jesus taught them that the world would hate them like they hated him. And it was in this huddle where Jesus prayed the most incredible prayer for his disciples. And now here in John 18, the huddle breaks. The journey begins. Look with me at verse 1. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. So Jesus and his disciples leave the place where they had been meeting and talking and praying, and they walk just a couple of hundred feet down into the bottom of, uh, the word here is valley. The, the Greek word here is kimaros. And it's basically an intermittent stream. Behind my home, there's a stream that's largely um, has water in it, but there are times of the year when it's really dry because there's not enough rain. And this is similar to that in that there's a, it's dry at the bottom most of the year, but when the rain comes, it, it's a stream right down and water runs, runs down the way. So, but most of the year, it's walkable. And so Jesus and his disciples are walking down in this valley. And the valley, not like... Appalachian Mountains Valley or Colorado Rockies Valley, but like 
Tennessee Hills Valley. Okay, so that's the image in your mind. And as they're walking through this, they go up one of the hills a little bit, and up one of those hills, there is an olive garden, and it's walled in, and this is where Jesus and his disciples are going at night. In fact, this place had, had become a hangout spot for Jesus and his disciples. They had been here often. Do you have a place like that? A place where given the day or the time, someone close to you would know where you are and know exactly where to find you. This is that place for Jesus and his disciples, which is why, as John points out in verse two, that Judas knew exactly where to find him. Judas, who betrayed him, John never wants you to forget that, by the way, also knew this place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So I don't want you to pretend for a moment that you are Judas in this scenario. Think of just how much control and how much power you think you have in this moment. Now, you know that Jesus knows you're going to betray him, but that doesn't mean that Jesus knows how you're going to do it or when you will do it. And given all that, you as Judas know that you can't go about this betrayal lightly. You can't chalk anything up to chance, so you plan. And you carefully think through the right time of day or the night to have Jesus arrested. And in choosing the night, you know nearly for certain exactly where Jesus would be because he was, after all, a creature of habit. He could not go far given the religious festivities taking place, and he was required to attend them. And by the way, night would be so much better in this situation because there's a lot less probability that the public would get involved. And once you do locate him, you'll wisely recognize that it could still get ugly. Jesus was very popular, and there are countless people here for the religious festivities. And even if you went at night, there's no guarantee that a public disturbance wouldn't get things stirred up. So you, you better not go alone. You better make a show of force that intimidates and could squash any form of rebellion. Look at verse three. Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So do you see Judas here? He's truly taken matters into his own hands. The planning, the timing, the resources. You know, from Judas's point of view, everything was coming together according to his plan. You know, put yourself in the shoes of the Jewish leaders that are in this moment. For a couple of years now, at least, you have been planning and trying to contrive of a way in which you could get rid of this Jesus. And now, in this moment, everything is coming to a head. Put yourself in the position of the Roman authorities. This is your territory, not the Jews. This religious festival that you've allowed to take place cannot get out of hand. No one can have um, the idea that the Romans would somehow lose control of a situation or a scenario. And so this is a moment that you believe you need to control. So whether you are Judas or whether you're a Jewish leader or whether you are a Roman soldier, you are going to make sure things go according to your plan. You are going to take matters into your own hands. Or so you would like to think. I say that because in the verses that follow, 
John goes out of his way in his version of this account to make sure that you and I know that even though it looks like Judas or the Jews or the Romans have matters in their hands, Jesus is actually the one in charge of the situation. Look at verses four and following. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. And Judas, who betrayed them, was also standing with them. And when Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I told you I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. If you look in the text very carefully, you can see there are multiple pieces of evidence that tell us that Jesus is the one who has all of these things in his hands. The first thing that John tells us is that Jesus acted in full knowledge of what was getting ready to happen. Jesus did not do what he did in the verses that follow or say what he said in this passage out of ignorance or as one subject to the whims of Judas or the soldiers or the police. He did what he did, and he said what he said with full knowledge of everything that would happen. There's no conjecture. Jesus didn't run a quick statistical analysis to get an insight. He didn't have a sixth sense of things. He had full knowledge of everything that was about to happen to him. The second thing John points out is that Jesus took the initiative to engage with his enemies and to identify himself rather than them be pursued by them and have them wondering where Jesus is and which one of these guys was Jesus. In verse four, Jesus goes out to meet this very large and intimidating group of officials and soldiers. And it's he that addresses them first, not the other way around. In verse five, these people refer to Jesus. They say, you know, Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus, the Nazarene. Remember, what good could possibly come out of Nazareth? The soldiers give him this name, refer to him this way because they're they're intending to imply that he's a nobody, that he's, 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 he's a nobody. And that Jesus in verse five doesn't refute that name. He actually kind of embraces the identity. He says, I am he, but he uses a phrase, ego a me, I am. This is the same phrase that Jesus used at the end of John eight in front of Jewish leaders. And when he did, they picked up stones to kill him for blasphemy and his claim to be God. And so in this instance, the Jewish leaders and the And the Roman soldiers are quite taken aback by the fact that Jesus would come out and address them, that he would so readily identify himself, that he would again claim his divinity in front of them, so much so that they fall back and Jesus has to continue his leadership of the conversation. And he says, I told you, I'm asking you, who is it are you seeking? And they say, well, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says in verse eight, I told you, I'm he. So if you're looking for me, let these Men go. So now you have Jesus not only leading the conversation, you have Jesus telling five, six, seven hundred temple police and Roman soldiers who they're going to arrest and who they're going to let go. 
So here's Jesus, a wanted man facing legal and military authorities of the Jews and the Gentiles who have come to arrest him. And here's Jesus telling them who they are and they are not going to take with them. Lastly, John also inserts that Jesus's actions fulfilled a prophecy that Jesus gave back in John 14, 15, 16, and 17. John inserts this little affirmation. This was to fulfill the words he had said. I have not lost one of those that you have given me as part of Jesus's prayer. So let's wrap this up. You have the omniscience of Jesus. You have the boldness of Jesus. You have the divinity of Jesus and you have the foreknowledge of Jesus. So it should be abundantly clear to you and I and all of John's readers that it's Jesus, not Judas. Jesus, not the Jews. Jesus, not the Romans, who is in charge here. Do you see, congregation, that it is Jesus and only Jesus and always Jesus who has matters in his hands. I hope you do, but if you don't, it's totally understandable because neither did Peter. We have a, we have a phrase for Peter here in the South, like, bless your heart, right? Peter is neither content to let the Jewish and Roman authorities, hundreds of armed people, be in charge, nor is he content to leave things in Jesus's hands. Instead, Peter tries to take matters into his own hands. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. By the way, this servant's name was Malchus. I cannot resist the temptation to question the mind of Peter in this moment. It's just, it's just too rich. What is a fisherman doing with a sword? What is he doing swinging it in front of hundreds of armed Roman soldiers? And why did he go for the easiest guy in the crowd? Right? He struck out at the intern. Like, this is the guy who's going to get to preach at Christmas. That's it. Like, this is, you know, the Sunday after Christmas. That's all this guy gets. And now he's missing an ear because of Peter. Like, it's just, of all the things, why did Peter feel like this was the moment and this was the way? There's so many things to learn here about this. But the truth of the matter is, as much as I'd like to make fun of Peter, I, I, I want to say, Peter, you know, what were you thinking? But if we're honest, we're Peter. We're all Peter. We love having matters in our own hands. So many times we just decide that we know better and we take matters that God has totally got. We take them into our own hands. We think we're being courageous, but really we're just being clueless. We act with confidence, but our actions are so clumsy. We have really good intentions, but we don't have any view of the implications. And I'm so glad that Jesus steps in at these moments in our lives and reasserts his authority, just like he does for Peter in verse 11. Jesus says, Peter, put, a, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? It's really, I'm really intrigued here at what Jesus does not say at this point compared to what he does say. It's fascinating to me that Jesus did not rebuke, 
rebuke Peter. There's the slip up, the verbal slip up for the sermon right there. All the teenagers giggled. Then he didn't rebuke Peter by appealing just to common sense. Like Jesus doesn't look in Peter and say, Peter, what are you doing? Look around you. We're surrounded by Roman soldiers and highly trained special forces who literally live to inflict pain and kill other people. You're a fisherman. And where did you get that sword anyway? And here you are attacking this little guy instead. What are you doing? Jesus doesn't appeal to any of the common sense circumstantial stuff to get inside Peter's heart and head. Instead, he appears, appeals to the supernatural. Put away your sword, Jesus said. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus effectively says to Peter, Peter, didn't you hear that play that I called in the huddle? Didn't you hear me say not to be troubled because I'm going to prepare a place for you because here you are behaving like one very troubled man. Didn't you hear me say that I am the way and the truth and the life because here you are behaving as someone who's very concerned about my death. Didn't you hear me say, Peter, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me because here you are behaving like I'm just some man. Didn't you hear me promise the Holy Spirit to be your strength and your power, Peter, because here you are behaving as someone who thinks he has no need for any more strength or any more power. Didn't you hear me say, Peter, that you didn't choose me, but that I have chosen you to produce fruit because here you are behaving as one who thinks he's chosen me and is in charge of this relationship. Peter, didn't you hear me pray for you? Peter, would you really rather me not take the cup of wrath on your behalf at the cross? Peter, would you really me rather not overcome the power of sin and death through my resurrection from the dead? Peter, do you really want to have matters in your hands? He would not allow Peter the privilege. Aren't you glad he didn't? Aren't you glad that it's Jesus and only Jesus who has matters in his hands? Aren't you glad that even when it appears that someone else has taken matters into their own hands, that Jesus still has all the matters in his hands? And while we, like Judas or the Jews or Peter or the Roman soldiers or everybody else, while we're all completely responsible for our choices and our behavior, we are fools if we ever believe that we can take matters into our own hands better than the one who has the whole world in his. Whether we are acting as God's enemies or whether we are courageous defenders of the faith, we simply cannot operate with such hubris that we know better than God. Rather, we must humbly submit to the sovereignty and providence of the Almighty. You know, this whole scenario of Jesus in a garden taking matters into his own hands, or rather keeping them in his hands, should remind you of another time in another garden where someone other than Jesus took matters into his own hands. In that garden, things did not go very well. In the Garden of Eden, everything was delightful, but in this garden, an olive garden, everything was terrible. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had a conversation with Satan, but in this garden, Jesus sought the face of his Father. 
In the Garden of Eden, Adam, Adam hid himself from God. But in this garden, Jesus boldly showed himself to the enemies. In the Garden of Eden, everything was heavenly, and yet Adam sinned. In this garden, everything was going to hell, and Jesus obeyed. In the Garden of Eden, Adam fell, but in this garden, the Redeemer conquered. In the Garden of Eden, Adam took the fruit from Eve's hand and brought death, but in this garden, Jesus took the cup of the Father's wrath and brought life. When the first Adam was in the garden, he blamed God and became separated from him. But when Jesus, the second Adam, was in this garden, he obeyed God and now sits at his right hand. Congregation, when it looked like everything was coming unraveled, everything was coming together. Do you think that you can leave your life's matters in Jesus' hands? I think you can. I think you can. And I'm going to pray that you will do just that. Will you pray with me, please? Father, it is to you, an almighty and sovereign God, that we pray. It is to a God who orchestrates history right down to its finest points. We need not live with pride and hubris, coming to the conclusion, panicking, running, taking matters into our own hands, living life, fretting about as if there is no God. Rather, we as believers can trust in your sovereignty and your providence. We can know and believe that you are God because we have this among countless other stories illustrating that when everything appears to be coming unraveled, everything is coming together. What greater point do we have than the gospel to believe this? That a great crime, a great act of injustice, the death of an innocent man, a perfect man, the perfect God-man, all acting, all taking place according to your ultimate plan, not to bring death, but to bring life. Lord, may we not live as though the gospel is not true. May we live in worship and honor and service of a God who has all the manners in his own hands. This is our prayer, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.